Welcome to this week's episode of Nostalgia. Today we're talking about nostalgia. No, not for the 90s, not Y2K, not the 2000s, but the most recently completed decade in time, the 2010s. You're probably like, wait, that was like yesterday. How can we already be talking about this? I will tell you why. We're going to discuss today why 2010s nostalgia is already being talked about, a quick bit on the rise of fast fashion as it relates to the evolution of social media, how trends travel through the diffusion of innovations, one of my favorite social science phenomena, by the way, some of my 2010s revival predictions, the difference between the cultural zeitgeist slash state of social media and the internet of the 2010s and the early 2020s as they exist now. And then we're also gonna explore the threads of continuity that connect the past with the present and even the future. Quick reminder, if you like this podcast, please share it with a friend, follow us on YouTube, rate and follow on Spotify, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts. We are growing in your engagement and your interest. It helps me develop new opportunities to build the Nostalgia community. We're going to be bringing the private newsletter public soon over onto Substack, working toward a Discord community, collabs, all those fun things. And we're doing this so that way you can connect with other people who they're like you, they're like me. We have these shared memories of the past, enthusiasm for pop culture in the present, and optimism toward how we will connect in the future. So we talk about the end of the monoculture now, like basically every week on this podcast now, but basically what we're seeing happen is that Gen Z, who currently drives much of the TikTok and internet culture, is experiencing the era of the now. It's of streaming, not cable. It's of highly curated algorithms, not SNCC, aka Saturday Night Nick, aka, which that's kind of sad actually, but whatever. They have an individualized, hyper-personalized, but increasingly siloed method of content consumption. So what do young people long for? What do we all long for, especially after the first two years of the 2020s? Connection, belonging. That is literally what nostalgia does. And fostering belonging is ultimately what we aim to do here at Nostalgia, the podcast, and soon the newsletter, the community, the product, to bring people together and make them feel like a part of something. And the difference here is that we don't just talk about nostalgia for the past, but the connection, like I'm, like I said, what, how long has it been? Two minutes? The connection between the past, the present, and the future, viewing the past through a contemporary lens. So Gen Z is getting to an age where they're nostalgic for their own lives, just like we were. And I'll tell you later in this episode when the first time was that I felt nostalgic about my own life, because <laughs> that's that's a fun moment. We, we were all alive in the 2010s. Well, we meaning everyone who consumes media firsthand now. So in 2022, we have either our own 
childhood, if not teenage, adolescent, young adult, or adult memories associated with this period of time. So when I say firsthand consumption, I don't mean gen alpha babies whose parents give them electronics and sidebar in case you're like, wait a second, who is gen alpha? Gen alpha, they're the children of millennials. So it's a generation younger than gen Z. Um, everyone loves fighting about what years people were born in and it makes them what generation, but Gen Al- like if Gen Z is 90s, right. It's like, what is 1996? Let's say it's 97 to 2009. Then Gen Alpha is 2010 to 20, I don't know, 25 or so. So all of the pandemic babies, all the, the kids who, whose parents are millennials, like that is Gen Alpha now. And allegedly Gen Beta is after that. I don't know if we're going to assume the Greek alphabet naming convention, but anyway, Gen Alpha is confirmed. So you heard it here if you haven't heard it before. Basically, my point here is anyone over the age of 13 years old now was alive for all of the 2010s. (laughs) What? Okay. Unlike the 90s, adolescents and young adults especially want to lean into nostalgia, but they only have one decade to work with, right? However, just like the 20, the 2010s, just like the 90s and 2000s, Gen Z can take millennial and even Gen X trends and add their own meaning because children were not on, like just because you were born in the 2010s doesn't mean that children were on 2012 to 2014 Tumblr and they did not go out to bars with shoelaces tied around their necks as chokers like the rest of us. But With the 2010s, the romanticizing of the past that they did not experience firsthand, aka the nostalgia as opposed to nostalgia, can actually be complemented for the 2010s by a young person's own life experience. So that's what differentiates this nostalgia for the 2010s for Gen Z versus the decades prior because they were not alive. Okay. We've seen this reported a lot, I feel like, in pop culture news lately. Now people are suddenly discovering trend forecasting. Not all of us went to fashion school, you know. Anyway, every single article of clothing practically has its own name, label, microtrend, niche, aesthetic, and how despite its reputation for wanting to save the environment and the world, Gen Z is really accelerated the unethical and detrimental environmental impact that the fast fashion industry makes with Shein hauls, Amazon hacks. I mean, those Amazon hack videos are extremely interesting and and fun content to consume. I'm not going to pretend like they're not. I'm not going to act like I'm above an Amazon hack. However, Shein's a multi or I don't know if they're a multi-billion, but at least a billion dollar company now. And I think that 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 does speak to the the rise of fast fashion in hand, like hand in hand with the rise of social media in the 2010s is when this really accelerated. So if you want to listen to more episodes of Nostalgia about fashion, trends, consumer behavior, I have two other solo episodes that you're going to like. One is about Juicy Couture, Junie and Bork, and 2000s Girls handbags. And the other is about Abercrombie and Fitch. So not like the documentary or I mean, that documentary came out now just about a month ago. So you've probably already read a million articles about it, just like saying how bad the company was. But 
The podcast episode goes into detail about their business model and why they're still an extremely successful company to this day, despite all that controversy. So I've just been telling people that if you listen to my podcast, you don't necessarily have to watch a documentary, but even if you watch a documentary, you still have to listen to the podcast. I don't make the rules. Anyway, fast fashion. It really emerged in the 2010s and it existed in the 2000s, Forever 21. (laughs) Wow. Everyone has formative memories around Forever 21 and H&M being the biggest players. Uh, Maybe Zara as well in coastal markets, but like I didn't have Zara growing up in Connecticut. I only heard about it when I went to fashion school. Anyway, the point is that fast fashion did not exist or function with the same utility that technology, social media, and social acceptance allows it to exist and function as it does now. So even brands like Nasty Gal that didn't start out as fast fashion, LOL, hashtag girlboss, became that way. And fashion brands like Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing, which I think those two and Nasty Gal are all under the same parent company, along with Shein, Misguided, Fashion Nova, et cetera, et cetera. People literally started calling these extremely poor quality, much of the time created with unethical labor and safety practices with extremely cheap prices, Instagram brands. And that just goes to show how the rise of fast fashion and social media were truly complementary in the 2010s. The traditional fashion cycle was much longer. So you would have something in a store for an entire season, not for like five minutes before someone threw it away. Actually, things aren't really even in stores, period, anymore. I think that that and the post-retail apocalypse of the early 2010s really shows that stark difference between something being in a store, being on display in a store and having that very traditional method of having products ushered in for a season and then they're there for a little while, they end up going on sale, those items end up moving out of the store and a new collection comes in. Like that process is so, the timeline is just so condensed now. And the diffusion of innovations that bell curve has flattened with the democratization of trends. So in case you haven't heard of it, and again, I'm literally obsessed with this theory of of social science, the diffusion of innovations is, and I quote, a theory that seeks to explain how, why, and at what rate new ideas and technologies spread. So this guy named Everett Rogers, he was a communication studies professor, popularized this theory in his book, Diffusion of Innovations, which was first published in 1962, which is kind of crazy. I'm going to explain the segments as they apply now, literally 60 years later. So for inspiration back in the day, you would see clothing on a runway, right? Created by innovators. And then you would have the early adopters. So these are fashion uh, industry insiders, magazine editors, the tastemakers, the influencers of that day. And they would communicate which trends or brands, whatever, were considered cool. And then the mainstream, of course, are the readers of that magazine or the people who saw Rachel from Friends' haircut on TV and told their stylist to do the same thing for them. The mainstream is divided into two parts, the early majority and the late majority, followed by the laggards until the item is ushered into obsolescence. Until the item, the trend, 
whatever is graced with the gift of time, the progression of societal ideals, etc., which allows that item, trend, etc., to reemerge in a new cultural zeitgeist and travel through the cycle once again. It may be the same item, but it will not have the same impact. As the Greek philosopher Heraclitus and also Disney princess Pocahontas said, paraphrased, you can't step in the same river twice. So now the rate at which information travels from segment to segment of that bell curve, the diffusion of innovations, it's gotten so rapid that people think fashion trends are as disposable as TikTok trends here today, gone tomorrow. Wired headphones were innovative because you could control the volume and track navigation on them, but then they weren't cool once AirPods became the newest thing. But then Bella Hadid wore wired headphones and everyone was like, oh, okay, wow, cool again, when those headphones had really only come out like five years earlier. And in case you're like, wait, literally, what are you talking about? That perfectly exemplifies what most people forget, which is that their social media exists in a vacuum. You can live in the same area of the country as someone, even be in the same household as someone and see completely different things on TikTok. It's a bubble. What you think is mass or mainstream level of awareness could only be because it's at the forefront of your attention. Obviously, early adopters and quote, very online people get hit with this the hardest. Instagram Reels is a great example. I'm going to break it down. So let's say an innovator starts a trend on TikTok. They introduce a new sound, a new dance, a new challenge, whatever. Early adopters post videos of their version of this trend. You start scrolling TikTok and seeing several of these adaptations of the original video, know what the original video was, see that this is a trend and hop on it before you're quote too late. And when I say too late, these people who are hopping on the trend definitely within a week, if not a few days, if not the same day as the original video. Of course, an early adopter is going to think that if they post a video a week after the original video was posted and there are already 65K videos using that sound or whatever, they're late. However, once the early majority gets their hands on the audio, it's already like two to three weeks later, it's all over Instagram reels. And the early adopter who thought they were late were actually early. So by the time the late majority gets to take their shot at the trend, they don't even know where the original trend came from and they don't get the original joke. And by then everyone's sick of hearing the audio, your mom's sending you Facebook videos, which were really just reels, which were really just TikToks. See the progression? Okay, so for the fashion trend revival predictions, these are things that are not necessarily going to come back themselves, but it's like more about what these things represent, okay? First of all, slightly controversial opinion, chuggy thing will come back and there will be a difference between original chuggy things and things that were chuggy but aren't really anymore. So really relating it back to the diffusion of innovations, what the word chuggy really means is obsolescence. In case, I guess, in case you're not like on the internet as much as, um, no, if you listen to this podcast, you're on the internet all the time, let's be honest. Okay. But for some reason, in case you don't know what the word chuggy means, it basically means things that have drifted into obsolescence, right? So basically, if you like things from the early 2010s in a non-ironic way, it's like Ray Dunn font style from Home Goods, Live, Laugh, Love, Chevron, Um, side parts, LOL. I'm not trying to start a war over here. I'm just reiterating. (laughs) And then all of this press coverage like came out around it uh, during the pandemic. So anyway, 
referring back to the diffusion of innovations, we could only call trends, styles, patterns, etc. chuggy because not enough time had elapsed between their obsolescence and their resurgence, right? Chuggy is trend purgatory. And I know you're probably talking to me right now through your computer screen or like into your headphones saying, no, Chevron and Peplum tops will never come back. But that's what we literally said about everything. We said that about low rise jeans and Von Dutch trucker hats. Stop trying to deny it. That's why it's called a trend cycle because it happens over and over again. And like I mentioned earlier, because of our vantage point, because of our presence in a different cultural zeitgeist, not just if, but how that trend shows up is what will be different in a few years from now, in the 2020s. Okay, let's see. Okay, Michael Kors watches. I've already sold so much of my Michael Kors stuff. Um, I worked there from 2010 to 2014, and their presence is still so saturated in off-price stores that this one may take a few years but I just feel like the watches will come back or at the very least, whatever the 2020s version of an arm party will be. So an arm party is when you would get, I forget if man repeller, L-O-L-R-I-P, um, that's a whole nother tangent. We're not talking about that today. An arm party was like your watch, but you also have like a matching, a few different matching bracelets and it would be a whole accessory moment. Okay. Tory Burch wrap bracelets, again, with the arm party, wrist candy, whatever vibes. We first saw these bracelets come back, not these specific bracelets, but like during the pandemic with people making beaded bracelets, it's very early 2010s EDM music festival plur um, vibes, reminiscent of like a nice little cocktail of 90s groovival smiley face flower power, 80s neon, and 60s hippie mushroom aesthetic. Like Gen Z making phone charms and whatnot is a great example of that. So I think that kind of bead DIY summer camp girly vibes, um, that may be how the, the arm party shows up in the 2020s. Next, I'm going to go ahead and say the Alexander McQueen skull scarf had a literal chokehold on us in the 2010s. It, I think it came out in the, no, it definitely came out in the 2000s, but I think the early 2010s, um, there will be some kind of statement accessory like that. I don't want to say that similar to the skull scarf, it's going to be because someone influential dies. So the piece becomes more popular, but probably, um, the skull scarf, yeah, it came out in the 2000s. I don't remember what year. And it was very popular in the early 2010s because Alexander McQueen passed away and he had an exhibition, not he, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York had an exhibition. What was it called? I have the book behind me. I literally was about to wait three hours in line to get into that exhibit because I was in fashion school too. So I was like really into him and, and his work and my mom was like, we're literally not waiting for three hours, just buy the book. So I did. It's going to bother me. Hold on. Savage Beauty. That's what the book is called. And it had like this really cool cover. If you're also listening instead of watching on YouTube or Spotify, I'll put up a picture of the book. You will remember it when you see it if you were a fashion girly. Okay. Next. 
All right. A large slouchy bag and some kind of structured bag are going to come back in the 2020s as well. So where is this coming from, right? So remember the Celine luggage bag? OMG, it was everywhere. The aspirational access to the Celine luggage bag, aka how did so many people know what it was and want to buy it when it was $3,000? That access was granted by Pinterest, 100%. That bag was on every single Pinterest pin in the 2010s, the early 2010s. So I think that there will be, in the 2020s, access to a more accessible bag through TikTok. For example, remember when that Amazon coat was really popular? Something like that a bag that people find out through TikTok and they'll be able to buy it and it's going to be a really affordable, accessible bag that you're going to start seeing everywhere. And then I think also access to an inaccessible bag more closely related to the Celine luggage bag, which then started being counterfeited, which is a whole other problem. Um, listen to the handbag episode if you want to hear about my opinions about that. Um, But access to inaccessible bags will be, I think, through the metaverse. So Hermes or Gucci establishing exclusivity on their own platforms, not on social media to drum up that feeling of excitement and, again, exclusivity. Next trend revival, I think there's going to be a new boot, a new boot to replace the riding boot. I was dying when I saw Anthony on Bridgerton wearing those black and brown two-tone riding boots in what? 18, I tweeted about it. I forget what year exactly, 1812 or something similar to 2012. LOL. Next trend, peplum tops. Peplum tops are going to come back, but I don't exactly know how they're going to be received. It's going to go one or two ways. The first way is that peplum tops are going to be like baby doll tops. We saw kind of like the peasant blouse in the 60s. We saw the baby dolls in the 70s. We saw baby dolls in the 2000s. So is that how peplum is going to be received? Like, okay, it's just this repeated silhouette that that comes back every so often. Or is it going to be like the popcorn tops that I absolutely can't stand and think are extremely uncomfortable? Who's to say? Next, yeah, chevron or a new pattern is going to come back. We've started to see this with cow print for Gen Z. I, I forget whether it was in an article or on TikTok. Someone said chevron cow print is the chevron for gen z um and i think we saw a lot of tie-dye during the pandemic but another pattern is going to come along and animal print was very in in the 2010s i'm like trying to think about it when i worked at michael kors i had a body dress in every animal print possible zebra print leopard print obviously so jersey shore came out in 2009 but in It was huge in the early 2010s, so we might see a nice leopard print with some kind of little twist. A new pattern will come along. Going out tops will be a category again, but they're going to look more like euphoria high and not like business casual. I could probably do a whole entire episode of like due to the recession and the economic conditions of the 2000, late 2000s, why we all dressed like Raven Baxter on That's So Raven, where we literally, there's a picture of me where I'm literally wearing pearls and flats. And it's like, I look like I am a secretary at an office, not a sophomore in high school. But yeah, people will start wearing going out tops again, but they're going to look very different to 
those kind of, whether it was a bubble top or a flowy top or a loose top or what we considered, quote, going out tops in the 2010s, it's going to have a completely different silhouette than that. It's going to show a lot more skin. It's going to be tighter, etc. Something else that I would say is going to happen, but it is already happening, is that you're going to see nostalgic companies coming back, but in the Web3 space. So whether that's Blockbuster DAO, LimeWire is an NFT marketplace, or Napster, which I think is pretty cool. There's also this NFT project called Y2K Relics or Relic, which I'm really looking forward to seeing what they come out with. Also, whenever Bratz wants to come around and to the metaverse, let me mint my nostalgia doll as an NFT. I'm so down. I just need to figure out how to make that happen. Um, let's see what else. The creator economy. It's going to majorly, majorly evolve. I would even say within the next year. And you're going to see a lot of Instagram 1.0 era influencers, bloggers, YouTubers retire or make major pivots because they're burned out and they're unable to adapt to rapidly changing algorithms and platforms. They've already been making this realization they don't own their content. And this has been the easiest way for me to describe the transition from web one to web two to web three. The So web one is like static websites, right? Where a company creates content and they own that content. Web two is social media. The creator makes the content now, but the company still makes money off of it. Web three, the creator makes the content, the creator makes money. So the technological learning curve required to transition from web two to web three, the decentralized internet is a lot steeper than web one to web two. Like for example, we saw early, early bloggers, fashion bloggers from the 2000s, food bloggers become successful Instagram influencers and even Instagram influencers from the 2010s become TikTok stars. But influencers now in 2022 who don't already monetize their presence or only have indirect revenue streams like affiliate links or creator fund programs, basically anything where they're counting on social media for a paycheck or their money's not going directly in their pocket from their patrons, their community, their audience, their supporters, it's going to be a lot harder for them to transition smoothly to an ecosystem where they are responsible for generating sales and not having just a large audience yield metrics uh, the way they used to be able to count on that. I think gamers, on the other hand, have an immense opportunity and a much less steep learning curve making their way into the metaverse and navigating the Web3 creator economy. So also due to Web3, the music industry will see its biggest shift since iTunes came out. As you may have heard, the iPod was very recently discontinued, which was a major technological innovation that ushered in the streaming era. That was in the 2000s, but I still had my iPod until hmm, maybe the early to mid 2010s. So I want to talk really quickly about the different social media platforms that we still have today and how they were different in the 2010s versus the 2020s. So YouTube, I like I can't even I can't even explain how different YouTube was from the 2000s to the 10s to the 20s. Each era I just feel like is so distinct and 
they've all had significant impact. Vine was really the predecessor to TikTok. I think everyone can really see that. Instagram, I mean, they basically rendered digital cameras obsolete. So it was kind of funny that there were apps like Visco and like Visco Girl, like that whole aesthetic of the late 2010s was imitating a film camera. And then, of course, with Urban Outfitters, you see vinyl coming back in for music, cassette tapes coming back in for music, uh, the Polaroid cameras for film cameras, the what are they called? Like the Fuji cameras, all that kind of stuff. Facebook was very, very, very different. I also recently was thinking about the link between the recession, the business casual look of the 2000s for for young people, like who were not yet old enough to actually like go to work. Like we were literally trained to be like little corporate minions. And the connection between that and like Facebook, we used to have to blur beer cans in the background of our photos, like stuff like that, because your life was dependent upon getting a job in corporate after you graduated college. So that's like a really, really, really interesting tie-in, I think. But anyway, Twitter, hashtag TBT. So this was when I realized that I was nostalgic for my own life. We were already listening to boy bands and like Ja Rule and Ashanti as throwbacks like eight years later. So I remember being in college in 2010 and we were listening to songs from 2002, from 1999, being like, oh my God, hashtag TBT. And I think Twitter, hashtag TBT, which I think now people might think it originated on Instagram, but Twitter was the first place that we saw hashtags. So that was really, I think, where it started, where we could finally have this space on the internet where we could look back. It was really the first time any generation had ever had that. So even the reporting coming out now about young people being nostalgic for their own middle school or high school experience, that is recycled. My roommate and I would play Faded by Soul Decision, which was a song, a like bubblegum boy band pop song from the year 2000 constantly until everyone got so annoyed with us. But then we started going to parties and other people would put that song on their playlist because they heard it from us, of course, setting the trends. But it's like that was a song from 10 years earlier and we were already feeling nostalgic for it. So anyway, it's interesting to see that cycle play out for the next generation. And so that's kind of social media, but the internet in general, it really wasn't until the mid 2010s when mobile view really became prevalent. And then the late 2010s when all websites became mobile optimized. Remember when mobile view was literally a separate mobile version of the website? Because the internet was not optimized for mobile, there were apps for everything, but these apps ended up changing the game in terms of customer expectations, whether it was how to track your online shopping orders or even your Domino's pizza that we would use in college. And now we have all of these delivery apps, whether it's the shop app that's integrated with Shopify, every specialty store, department store has its own app, Amazon, et cetera. So everything is the same, but it's different. Get what I'm saying? 
Like with trends, it's not just that X brand or Y type of shoe or handbag will come back again. It may, some will, but it's more so that the ideas and the attitudes are cyclical as well. We will never experience life again from the vantage point of any time other than right now. So the fact that it's 2022 affects how we perceive things. It's why we didn't see how poorly Britney and Paris and Lindsay, et cetera, were treated in the 20, I was going to say the 2010s, the 2000s until now. And on the flip side of the coin, we can make predictions or speculations about the future of what will come back because we've lived through the zeitgeist of the 2010s. But like Chuck Klosterman says in one of my favorite books, But What If We're Wrong, we cannot perceive the present until it is the distant past. And we're literally wrong about everything. Or as it's more commonly said, hindsight is 2020. Okay. I'm not going to get into actual TV shows, movies, songs, et cetera, from this time because that's what we talk about with guests on our show. But I'm going to look at it from like an attitudes society at large perspective, okay? So the nature of virality stayed the same to an extent. Information is just spread on TikTok instead of, I guess, YouTube or Facebook. Like when we had dances in the 2010s, like the jerk, cat daddy, twerking, shuffling, whip, nene, flossing, which it's so funny because flossing seems like it was in a different decade than those other ones. Like the dances of the early, the early 2010s and the late 2010s were really two different zeitgeists. But anyway, we don't have time to talk about that today. But now we have TikTok dance trends like Megan the Stallion Savage in 2020. And in the 2010s, we had challenges like mannequin challenge, ice bucket challenge, planking. (laughs) Uh, Remember that? Now we have, I don't know, whatever TikTok challenges there are. And people still make viral memes from various YouTube videos, but now they might show up in the form of being a viral TikTok sound, for example. And now as we talk about the 2010s and how they relate to the future, not just the past, obviously cryptocurrency and its volatility and its risks. I can't even say they're being normalized, but early adopters have entered the chat. So same with Web3, Metaverse, non-fungible tokens, aka NFTs, DeFi, aka decentralized finance. I'd love to do some Web3 slash pop culture episodes soon since this is an area I'm involved in, consistently learning about, and am fascinated by. Um, We're not going to get into what all of those things mean today. But yeah, like for example, Banksy's artwork self-destructing after its sale in 2018 is a great example of how our perceptions will continue to shift in the 2020s. Like money isn't real. Art can be anything. What is value? What is currency? Also the metaverse, like we already had the Sims in literally the year 2000, but with Fortnite, Twitch and gaming developments, which I don't think I have to say full disclosure, gaming is not my area of expertise. Like that may be obvious to you. But anyway, the technology is developing and the gamers are already there. So even if the concept still seems fringy now, gaming is going to continue to become integrated into the human experience. I actually first saw this in the 2010s when games like Angry Birds came out. I was like, wait, people are playing real money to play a fake game? Yes. But like what is real and what is fake? Hmm. That's something to think about. I can't remember where I first read this or heard this, but we didn't need the internet until we did. Now we can't imagine life without it. We didn't need social media until we did. And now we can't imagine our life without that either. 
and Web3 and having ownership over memberships, concert tickets, digital art, our own bank accounts in a totally new way is something even the early majority doesn't even understand, let alone have a need for until they do. You see the pattern? Cool, right? I can't wait to see how 2010s nostalgia, which, wait, stop. I can't end this episode without mentioning indie sleaze. I didn't even mention indie sleaze at all. Okay, well, anyway, this was really fun. If there's something that you want to hear us talk about, make sure to leave a comment on YouTube. Let me know. That just about wraps it up. I hope you had fun listening to this episode, hanging out with me. I love talking about the intersection of nostalgia, pop culture, fashion, trends, consumer behavior, innovation, technology. So make sure again to subscribe, follow, rate, review, etc. I will see you next time. Bye. Bye.